0: to it's a question of balance with Ruth Copeland, featuring stimulating, in-depth interviews with special guests from all areas of the arts. And now, here's your host for it's a question of balance, Ruth Copeland.
1: Welcome to the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, exploring whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the Topic Hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street about a wide variety of different subjects that affect everybody, both locally and globally. And for this, the Arts Hour, I interview guests from all areas of the arts, from all areas of the world. The show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. Well, this week, I'm very pleased to be interviewing Hampton Sides, historian, award-winning journalist and New York Times best-selling author of seven books of literary nonfiction, Hampton Sides is best known for his gripping non-fiction adventure stories. His book, Ghost Soldiers, a World War II narrative about the rescue of Bataan Death March survivors, has sold over a million copies worldwide, been translated into a dozen foreign languages, and was the subject of documentaries on PBS and the History Channel and the basis for the 2005 Miramax film, The Great Raid. His book Hellhound on His Trail about the murder of Martin Luther King Jr and the international manhunt for assassin James Earl Ray was the basis for the acclaimed documentary Roads to Memphis for which Hampton served as historical consultant. Hampton's book Blood and Thunder, about the life and times of controversial frontiersman Kit Carson, was named one of the 10 best books of 2006 by Time magazine and is currently under development for the screen. A native of Memphis and a Yale graduate, Hampton has guest lectured at Columbia, Stanford, SMU and Yale. He is the 2015 Miller Distinguished Scholar at the Santa Fe Inst- Institute and also teaches narrative nonfiction and serves as journalist-in-residence at Colorado College. He's editor-at-large for Outside Magazine and has written for such periodicals as National Geographic, The New Yorker, Esquire, Preservation and Men's Journal. His magazine work, collected in numerous published anthologies, has been twice nominated for National Magazine Awards for feature writing. He is a partner of Atalaya Productions Film Company, which develops non-fiction and historical stories for the screen. Hampton's latest book is On Desperate Ground, The Marines at the Reservoir, The Korean War's Greatest Battle. And if you're in the Bay Area in California, Hampton will be at Bookshop Santa Cruz to discuss this book and also sign books on the 26th of November at 7 p.m., but right now, he's here with us. Welcome to the show, Hampton.
0: Great to be back with you, Ruth.
1: Yeah, it's lovely to talk to you again. If you have been listening to the show for a long time, you will know that I spoke to Hampton about his last book, which is a, a, a while ago now, but it is great to talk to you again too. So you studied history at Yale, and your whole writing career centers on, on history. I'm wondering where your interest in history began.
0: Oh, I, I probably probably from several really great high school history teachers that I had. Uh, you know, it often comes down to that. Mm. Um, Mr. Dedrick was his name uh, in Memphis growing up. That, that's certainly one of, one of the origins of my interest, uh, Mr. Dedrick, who just made it come alive. You know, some teachers know how to do that. Um, I yeah. also uh, grew up in Memphis, uh, a, had a buddy named Huggy Foot, whose father was a great, celebrated narrative historian, Shelby Foote. He was a Civil War historian and the star of that Ken Burns documentary about the Civil War. Mm. And, you know, he was this great old guy with a beard and a pipe and, you know, this wonderful Delta accent and uh, uh, hung out a lot in his house and sort of, you know, spied this creature, you know, padding down the hallway, going back to his study where he was working on for 20 years this massive trilogy of the Civil War. And wow. um you know, I think that gave me some ideas about the discipline and the kind of the solitary nature of writing, uh, but this notion that you can kind of get into a time machine and go back in time and kind of commune with these ghosts hmm. from another period uh, was just a fascinating idea, and I, I'm sure I filed that away somewhere as I got older and, and decided to become a writer that, you know, history, history is just... Um, you know, it's such a wide open field. We can go We can go anywhere if we want to get in that time machine.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it, sort of uh, speaking with ghosts, you know, in, a, in an intimate way. As a creative non writer, the literary form of your work is as important as assiduously researching the facts. When did you decide that you wanted to be a writer as, as well as a historian?
0: Well, um... When I was in college, I, I became a bit infatuated with what we what we now call the new journalism. Um, these these were folks like Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and uh, Tom, Norman Mailer and so forth, who mm. were in the nineteen sixties and seventies and into the eighties, were really trying to shake up the discipline of journalism, uh, which was quite stodgy, um, mm. and inject it with more life and vigor and, and with some uh, idiosyncrasies of, that, that perhaps a novelist would bring to a, a subject, uh, reconstructed dialogue, um, you know, just basically changing the form of the standard stodgy journalism piece. Uh, so I'm, I, you know, read a lot of these folks, and I'm sure that affected my, my um approach to, to magazine journalism, which is what I did right out of college for a number of years. Right. But then I began to think, you know, how how about applying some of those same techniques of what we'll call the new journalism to the raw stuff of history, go back in time and, you know, do some of the same sorts of things, you know, like shifting point of view and uh, multiple storylines that sort of intersect or parallel. And, you um, you know, uh, a lot of other things that I think we more commonly associate with a novel. Yeah. Uh, except that the golden rule—you can't make anything up.
1: Right. Um,
0: so um, I'm sure that that all started sometime around college when I started reading those great folks like Tom Wolfe.
1: Right. Yeah. I was going to ask you whether you grew up in a creative art sort of an environment and whether that had any effect on you wanting to write creatively. In this way.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's also true. My mother was a painter, uh, and um, my father was, uh, although he was a lawyer and a law professor, his real love was theater, and he did a lot of, of plays and musicals, and was uh, in a choir, that, you know, it's the church choir, and played a lot of other kinds of musicals. Uh, uh, did a lot of music
2: Mm. throughout his
0: career. So I'm sure that somehow that idea of putting on a show, performing, um, you know, or in the, in the case of art, you know, putting a frame around something, you know, sort of putting it up on the wall. um, Yeah. You know, there's an element of that in writers too, you know, in a sense we're saying we're we're framing reality and we're, we're putting it up for everyone to see. And uh, I suppose some of that came from my folks
1: yeah and I think, like painting, you know you're they make choices of you know composition and color, but a writer is doing the same thing, but through you know language
0: right right yeah absolutely and 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 you know that's also comes a little bit from having done a lot of magazine work, you know, putting mm-hmm. on a magazine is like a show you know it's like you've got to have a good mix and you've got to make make it flow well from feature to feature. Uh, and what 's in the front of the book, and what 's in the back of the book, and you wanted to have you know feel like a show in some way um, yeah and and I 'm sure that that rubbed off on me as well,
1: yeah, oh, I could see that. Do you remember the first time that art of any kind had an effect on you where you realized that that art has a power to affect us beyond just entertainment, you know where it can really kind of stir emotions
0: huh well um you know. I, I think I really get that kind of feeling more in nature. I think when I'm, mm, you know, out in the yeah. wilderness somewhere, you go to some place like Yosemite or or, or or the Grand Canyon where I do a lot of hiking, and and there, you know, there are m- moments where you know it is art. It's it's God's yeah. art, but uh, you, it just takes your breath away. And you know, it's the closest I've ever felt to truly a spiritual feeling is. one time when I rafted the Grand Canyon, um, you know, the full length of Colorado there, and you just, you you know, you're just, it it just smites you. It's just so beautiful and so powerful, also a little bit haunting
2: Mm. because
0: you're looking at so many eons of time and and realizing how small we are. It's it's really one of those great paradoxes that uh, I, I find it very comforting to know that I'm Small, mm. that I'm nothing. Uh, and nature does that to you. It kind of yeah. makes you feel insignificant in the passage of time, and yet somehow that's a powerful and comforting thought. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say you know, yeah, nature is probably where I've felt that more than any single work of art that's done that to me. Uh, if I think about it, though, maybe I'll I'll come
1: up with yeah, some no, no, some just like that. just interested, and I think that you know creative energy and if you think of nature as the ultimate creator in that it's constantly you know evolving and renewing and and so full of life I mean I think that creative energy is this sort of you know part of the same thing as the you know creative energy in in art and in in spirituality and even in you know love and in, in erotic energy I think it's all you know similar or the or the same kind of life force in in uh-huh. in some ways. Yeah. So yeah. I could definitely see that. Yeah. You're um widely regarded as one of the best nonfiction writers of your generation. The Miami Herald wrote that you have a novelist's eye for the propulsive elements that lend momentum and dramatic pace to the best nonfiction narrative. You're a historian, so I'm assuming that's why you like writing about history. But as you tell such a good tale in a literary sense, you're a really good writer. I'm wondering why you prefer to write nonfiction narrative rather than historical novels.
0: Yeah. Gosh, I grapple with that a lot. I, I, you know, a lot of people have said to me, well, you know, why don't you just click the dial several clicks over that way and start <laughs> doing historical fiction? Um, where you can get inside the, really, inside the minds of people and and the hearts of people in a way that nonfiction, you can't quite do that. Um, And I've dabbled with the idea, I've played with it, um, but, you know, I I find something slightly uncomfortable about historical fiction. When I read Mm -hmm. a good historical novel, I'm constantly asking the question, like, is that fact? Is that a fact? Is this made up? Mm -hmm. Is this a fact? Is that made up? You know, it's like there's a ledger, and I'm re- really aware of of, of what it's I'd like to be aware of what's what's real and what's not.
1: And, yeah, yeah. And
0: it's um, it's it's somehow even like you know, E. L. Doctorow wrote some of these really great historical novels, um, and I remember reading his stuff growing up. And even even though it was wonderful, I was constantly asking the question, "Well, is that a fact?" We didn't have Google back then. I couldn't go fact check it <laughs> instantly. Uh, so yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. So you ultimately have to suspend all disbelief. You know, you just have to. It's a it's a novel. You have to read it like a novel. I think. Yeah. In the end. Um, yeah. But I I don't know. I, I, there's just something about. The raw stuff of history. That when I'm reading a good narrative nonfiction work, I, you know, it just is all the more powerful to me because I know it's true.
1: Yes, uh, yeah. it's,
0: it's, as true as the writer can possibly make it. Uh, obviously, there's no absolute, you know, yeah. objective, 100% provable truth. But you know, it, it is as accurate as the writer can 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 make it, and that gives it a special power, and you know, it gives it a uh, You know, I feel like I'm on on terra firma
2: when I'm reading a
0: a good work of nonfiction. That's where you go back into the notes and you see the level of research and um, the the level of, you know, just the sheer numbers of books and archives that were consulted. Mm. um, I feel like I'm I'm on solid ground.
1: Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, the way that you write, you know, narrative nonfiction, it's creative um, nonfiction, you know, it's the best of, of both worlds uh, because you, yeah. you know it's true, but it's also really drawing you in and getting you more inside people's experience than if you, it was just sort of a traditional academic history.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, ac- you know, that's an that's a interesting point because academic history, um, you know, is, is still a little bit uncertain about how to deal with narrative like, you know, you know, when I go and teach at colleges, I'm rarely invited by the history department. Oh. I'm, I'm usually invited by the English department or <laughs> perhaps the American Studies department or, hmm. or the journalism department or, the, or an MFA creative writing program. Hmm. History, you know, history uh, folks prefer that you have a Ph.D., first of all. Hmm. Um And there was certainly at least a master's, which I have neither of. Right. Um, And, you know, they, at least when I was coming up, uh, you know, there were some great professors uh, at Yale, some of the very best. It was a heavyweight history department. But I don't much remember the word pleasure, uh, (laughs) you know, ever being used to describe Yeah. Yeah the writing and the reading of, of history or, or that it, you know, is a great yarn or should be a great story there. Mm. Um, mainly the kind of writing I think we were taught to do in history, uh, in the history department, was argument. Mm. Um, you know, learn how to argue a point. You 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 come up with a thesis and then you defend your thesis and marshal your evidence to prove your thesis. Mm. Uh, and you build towards a, a conclusion. And, it, you know, it feels like a rather legalistic model, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like you're arguing, and there's it's certainly certainly very important to know how to argue. It's a completely legitimate form of writing, but it's not narrative, and it's the death of narrative. If you let, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of academic history books tend to be argument, uh, and you know, narrative is a different kind of animal. You know, mm-hmm. you're you're really trying to tell a story. You're not necessarily trying to prove a point, point. Um, and now in in my books, of course. In small ways, I'm often making a case for something. Mm. Perhaps I do it in the notes. Perhaps I just, you know, try to have a light touch, but make my points. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't. I, I want to get away from that legalistic model um, uh, because it's just—it's usually deadly dull. <laughs> is really what it yeah. comes down to.
1: Yeah. Well, I was going to say the number of people who who have time or inclination to absorb that kind of material is is fairly limited isn't it yeah. you know and and so I think the way you're writing obviously clearly from you know the numbers of uh, books that you've sold you know is is accessible to people but as you've said it is totally you know assiduously researched and based on fact and um, you know I think that that is opening up history to people who wouldn't be reading it otherwise right In yeah. in many right. cases you know
0: yeah. Right. Well, certainly that's what we're shooting for. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, of course now the, the whole question of what is a fact seems to be under assault these days. And, uh, yes. you know, there's been talk about truth decay and, you know, this idea that there's really no, no truth. There's just
1: yeah. right-wing
0: truth and left-wing truth and Fox facts and CNN facts. And it's very troubling to me that we, we seem to be kind of in such an agi- agitated state that we... Are beginning to question the the very notion of truth and ha- and how we judge what is true and false um, that's um, it's a bit a bit scary, but uh, luckily by going back into time, I feel like i'm a little bit on safer ground yes. Um in in these stories that I write
1: yeah, yeah, well, I was going to talk to you about that, so hold that thought. Um, We're going to go to a break now. If uh, you just joined us, you're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest, award-winning journalist, best-selling author and historian, Hampton Sides. We're going to be talking after the break about his new book, On Desperate Ground, The Marines at the Reservoir, The Korean War's Greatest Battle. And uh, Hampton's going to be in Santa Cruz on the 26th of November.
3: Do you like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com.
1: about you in the rain Did I or didn't I say it's forever Well, I know I said it babe, it just goes nowhere Well, we
2: can do the things we want We can do the things we like But if we're taking all the time
4: Well, I just don't think that it's
1: right Is more to us than
3: just that. It's a question of balance music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com.
4: Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles, which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, BookshopSantaCruz.com.
3: Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to It's Question of Balance with me, Ruth Coplin, and my special guest this week, historian, award-winning journalist, and New York Times best-selling literary non-fiction author, Hampton Sides. And I'm going to be talking to Hampton about his latest book, On Desperate Ground, The Marines at the Reservoir, The Korean War's Greatest Battle. And I just wanted to let you know again... Um, If you are in the Bay Area in California, then Hampton is going to be at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Monday, November 26th at 7 p.m. to discuss this new book on Desperate Ground um, and also to sign books. And it's a great chance to meet him in person and ask any questions that you might have. You can get information on that at BookshopSantaCruz.com. But again, that's Monday, November 26th at 7 p.m. Well, before the break, um, we were talking about uh, this environment that we're currently in uh, with uh, facts being questioned as to whether they can actually be facts. As as I've mentioned, you're a historian, writer and also a journalist and with the whole very disturbing fake news environment that's being manufactured, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how the discrediting of journalism, even when stories are supported by previously unassailable information such as government records affects history going forward I mean obviously there's always the element of history being told by not necessarily disinterested people um you know and, and as you've said sometimes it's it's your best kind of uh not guess but you know assessment as to the truth of history but I'm wondering whether the truth of contemporary history is more in danger than in past times
0: yeah well you know it's um yeah all of this i think has been uh accelerated by social media you know the, the internet um and mm. you know you know it's it, it, it a lie can get around the world <laughs> very quickly now yeah and um you know I suppose it's you know when you go back into history you find that we we had our own versions of fake news um you know i the last book that I wrote, in the Kingdom of Ice,
2: mm.
0: was um, partly set in New York City and the the newspaper world uh, of the Gilded Age. And you know, those newspapers were printing all kinds of stuff that was <laughs> that was uh, not fact checked. Let's say, some, yes. some some facts are just too good, you know, too good to check. Yeah, um, and you know, we've with each subsequent kind of uh, kind of uh, platform for journalism, we've we've seen. Uh, you know ways in which it can be abused and um so th- i guess you could say i guess it's somewhat comforting to say that fake news is is nothing new it's been mm. around forever and uh and all you can really do is is as just constantly sift and and challenge the information and 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 you know vet it as best you can and and make sure that you um uh, purge yourself of any preconceived notions and and biases that you may have.
2: Mm.
0: Uh one of the other kinds of problems that a lot of historians have is what's sometimes called presentism. Mm. You know, which is the idea oh, that yeah. you go back into time and you judge these characters and you analyze these characters based on what you what you know mm. to be true now, today. Yeah. What we know uh, about science or what we know about, you know, Hopefully, we've all made great advances in terms of our understanding of race and uh, gender and uh, mm. equality and um, what, what constitutes uh, human rights. And uh, but you know, we do it all the time. Though we go back into time and, and you write these pieces, and you see all the time historians um, kind of committing this act of presentism, ju- judging the past by the present. So you you do want to try to scrape away those kinds of modern sensibilities and what we know now and, you know, try to put these people in the amber of their time mm. and, and see them for what they were then uh, and not, you know, not, you know, not filter it through to the lens of today's society.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Because, you know, often beliefs which now are disturbing to us, were just really commonly held in, in the past, which, you know, they may have been, wrong as we now think of it but in a way you can't judge people in the same way because it was just sort of you know in the fabric of a society for instance that's an example isn't it i think yeah
0: right and i've certainly encountered that many times and you know uh there are certain people who who actually think on the contrary you should you should go back and judge people by by today's standards and norms and social mores but Yeah, you know, I suppose if you're writing some kind of revisionist history, you can do that. But Mm -hmm. if you're really just trying to write a narrative, which is what I do, um, I try not to to do that at all. I try to avoid it uh, as best I can.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before I ask you about your book On Desperate Ground, I'm wondering if first you could give listeners a a quick taste of what it's about.
0: Yes. uh, Well, it is a book about a single battle – what what I take to be the most intense and most dramatic battle of the Korean War, uh, a war that is a largely forgotten war, um, you know, I've, for a variety of reasons. I think Americans um, have given short shrift to this, this major war in which 33,000 Americans were killed, um, except for endless reruns of MASH. <laughs> I think right. most of us uh, are, are a little bit confused, a little vague on precisely what Korea was about and yeah. you know, why we were there and why all the other UN forces were there and so forth. Uh, so I'd, I'd long wanted to write about the Korean War, but it's such a complicated narrative with so many twists and turns that I realized early on, no, what I need to do is find one pivotal, decisive, dramatic battle uh, that has most of the strands the, uh, of 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 the of the whole war uh, but but you know has its own tight timeline and
2: right. geography yeah. and everything
0: so so it's the it's the battle of chosen reservoir which is uh, uh a battle that was fought in late November and december of nineteen fifty in the mountains of north korea uh around the shores of a frozen lake the chosen reservoir was a man made that had been constructed during the Japanese occupation of Korea. Mm. Uh, By this point, it was frozen solid. It was just a sheet of ice. And the the temperatures had plunged to 35 below zero when the Americans were pushed up into those mountains, uh, when the Americans pushed up into those mountains, when they were completely surrounded by overwhelming numbers of, of Chinese soldiers that Mao had sent Secretly across the Yellow River, the border with Manchuria, into those mountains. And um, it was like a classic kind of ambush. Uh, mm. They were very successful and kind of coaxing the, Mar- the Americans forward, thinking that there really weren't too many Chinese around, and then surrounding them and, mm. and attacking. Uh, on the night of November 27th, um, 28th, uh, the, uh, the, the battle begins in earnest. And so it's a battle narrative. And, you know, yeah. it's funny. I'm not really a military historian per se. I've, I've, I've written about war, but I, I leave it as often as, as I write about it. Um, I don't really come from a military family. Um, but I've just found that war often lays characters bare. You know, it strips everything down, and you see what people are capable of, and you see in a kind of a uh, compressed environment um, – attributes of character that you you might not see in other kinds of settings um so yeah it kept me busy for about three years uh just trying to piece this narrative together of 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 this of these 17 days in in the winter of
1: 1950 yeah you said yourself that Chosin is probably the most richly documented battle in the korean conflict if not all of post-world war ii american engagements um what what interest you, interested you in covering a subject that's already been covered so broadly? Was it taking a more sort of personal look at it?
0: Well, I, I think that even though it's been covered a lot, most of those books that I mentioned in my bibliography are, for whatever reason, very obscure. I mean, mm. it's it's been covered a lot, but it hasn't really been widely read. I mean, I think if you if you ask a hundred people on the street. You know, have you heard about the Battle of Chosen Reservoir? You know, you might get five people who have. It's pretty obscure. But if yeah. you ask people, have you heard of the Battle of the Bulge? Another right. Cold War battle, and this one from World War II. Um, people say, yeah, I've, I've heard of it. Maybe they don't know all the details. So that's part of it. Is just this notion that mm. it's it may be the best documented battle, but it's it's in a in a forgotten war and in a war yeah. that just somehow doesn't. It often doesn't move the needle for people because they they just, I don't know what it is. They just don't, some people don't think it was a real war. It was a police action. It was a a conflict. Um, It wasn't, of course, a formally declared war. Um,
1: I mean, I wondered whether it might be because the war was largely fought over ideology, really. It Mm -hmm. seems, I don't know whether that doesn't grip people in the same way as you know, I mean, I know they did invade the South, but, you know, in terms of a real sort of trying to take something over, like, yeah. you know.
0: That could be. I mean, it certainly was the the opening salvo of the Cold War and, and this great clash of ideologies, commun- world communism versus dem- democratic capitalism, whatever you want to call mm. uh, our political philosophy. Um, absolutely. But, you know, I suppose World War II had an element of of that as well, yeah. um, you know, in, in terms of trying fascism to defeat and, yeah. uh, fascism. But um, I think it's also partly forgotten because it was a war that ended in stalemate. Mm. It, it, uh, it, We didn't win and we didn't lose. We more or less returned the battle lines to where they started, which was the 38th parallel.
2: Mm. And
0: that's where the DMZ is today. And um, so it's like, yeah, you can understand a victory and you can understand a, a, a defeat, but a draw, you know, that's, uh, that's yeah. a little harder narrative to get your head around.
1: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. When I was reading that y- you said it had been sidelined in U.S. history, I did a little bit of research, and I found out there were 14,000 British soldiers in the yes. Korean War. And, I mean, I had no idea Britain was involved in the Korean War at all. It's not anything we're ever taught or yep. told about. So, I mean, you know, it's another level of, of not knowing, you know, for me. Um, right. Yeah. Um,
0: there were, in fact, 300 elite British uh, troops uh, in this battle that I write about, um, oh, wow. the, the Battle of Chosen Reservoir, at a key part of the battle, a group of there was a group called four, uh, 41 Independent Commando, which was a group of the Royal Marines, and they were these green berets, and they were you know had all this sort of exaggerated sense of style in the middle of this 35 below zero <laughs> weather. They're wearing these these uh, little little caps and uh, marching off into. What ended up being really one of the very worst parts of the battle, yeah. uh, and everybody loved those guys. I went to a reunion in London, actually, of of the Royal Marines, and got to talk to some of those guys. Wonderful guys.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, I'm biased, but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the Marines are epic. So you've said that you know, obviously, this war didn't really well ended with a stalemate, but this this battle didn't so I mean I guess that's one way of uh, you know one reason to focus on this is you know people love also a kind of asymmetrical um, I mean although it's tragic you know but but uh, the asymmetry of this is is, um, amazing isn't it And, and you know how they they manage that but with a story that's so epic you know with tens of thousands involved how did you choose who to focus on in the narrative?
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that's always a problem with battles because there's so much happening across a, you know, fairly large area simultaneously. Uh and there's a lot of sort of fog of war and you know, mm. the timelines are a little tricky to figure out. There's also a lot of um uh, conflict of uh, or difference of opinion in terms of what what happened like if you ask one guy who was in this foxhole and then another guy who's like 20 yards away he may have a completely different impression of what just happened um mm, so yeah. so those are all problems that a historian has to kind of grapple with but what i decided to do was to follow the the commander of the first marine division general oliver prince smith uh, he's he's sort of the uh, all-knowing character in the book in the sense that he he has all the intelligence he knows what to do and what what all the different pieces on the of the battlefield you know where they are what they, what they're doing and what the strategy is um, so he's the through line or the glue that holds the whole thing together he's also just an amazing character uh, and a really revered man in the in the U.S. Marine Corps General Smith mm. but then I leave Smith and go down to the you know, platoon level, uh, the grunts, and, you know, I just try to follow the, the very best stories. I, You know, it's mm. almost an embarrassment of riches. There's so many of these individual narratives of individual valor or survival, or resilience, um, and I just picked the best ones. In a way, I suppose you could say it was like, you know, cherry-picking, just the very most dramatic or most poignant um, or most telling um, individual Scenarios, you might say, mm. kind of these profiles of co- courage. Um, most of them are Marines, but I also look at an Army guy and some naval aviators, and also a North Korean civilian who gets caught up in this whole story. Uh, so you know, you you have all these individual. It's almost like a pointillism, you know, a lot of dots of you mm. know these these individual stories, and then and then superimposed over that is General Smith, and you know his sense of the whole strategy of the war, What are we of the battle, rather. What, what are we trying to do here? You know, what they're trying to do for the first five days is hold on for dear life. Mm. You know, they are being attacked at night by 120,000 Chinese soldiers just wave after wave after wave after wave. And mm. they, uh, you know, much of the combat is close in, hand to hand. They're using shovels and bayonets, and, you know, it's just like, well. it's just unbelievably intimate, uh, combat, uh, and the Marines, you know, are really in danger of being annihilated. Yeah. But they regroup, they manage to sort of get their regiments pulled in to one location, this stronghold called Hageru, and then General Smith plans his breakout. He realizes at this point, they're not moving north anymore. They're going to have to turn around and go south. They're going to have to get out of the mountains. And so it's, it's a, it's a retreat in a way, you know. Right. The Marines yeah. will never use that word; they call it a, an attack in another direction, or <laughs> <they> <laughs> yeah. advance yeah. to the rear, or a, you know, a retrograde maneuver. Yeah. But uh, that's essentially what what chosen is. It's a story yeah. of a well-organized, you know, just exquisitely well choreographed fighting withdrawal.
1: Yeah. Uh, which
0: is one of the hardest things you can do in warfare, Absolutely. I'm told. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Yeah,
0: And uh, because you've got so many moving parts and every everything is moving and you're in the mountains and there's, you know, planes flying overhead and there's artillery and there's uh, patrols out on the flanks, up on the ridge lines, and these various enclaves that kind of collapse within each other. You've got to get your wounded out. Um, you've got to destroy equipment that's not going to, so it won't fall into the enemy hands. Mm. And all of this has to happen in a synchronized fashion. So this is why the Marines celebrate this battle so much and if you go to Quantico which is Mm. where the National Marine Museum is it's one of the three battles that they they pick as the classic you know classic battles of the U.S. Marine Corps yeah Um, so studied in schools and you know know, academies and uh, you know it's just uh, it's just part of the lore of the U.S. Marines
1: yeah well, if you just joined us, um, I'm speaking to my special guest this week—Hampton Sides, historian, award-winning journalist, and best-selling author. We're talking about his latest book, *On Desperate Ground*. We're going to go to a break now, but we'll be back with more conversation after these messages.
4: Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second-generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com.
3: Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz.
2: Can you imagine living without stress, anxiety or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at AnandaScottsValley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's AnandaScottsValley.org or 338-YOGA.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest this week, award-winning journalist, best-selling writer and historian, Hampton Sides. And I just wanted to uh, let listeners in the Bay Area in California know again that uh, Hampton is going to be in Santa Cruz at Bookshop Santa Cruz on Monday, November 26th at 7pm to talk about his uh, latest book, which we've been discussing, On Desperate Ground, The Marines at the Reservoir, the Korean War's Greatest Battles, great opportunity to uh, meet him in person and ask questions and get your book signed. So again, that's November 26th, Bookshop Santa Cruz, and you can get more information at their website, bookshopsantacruz.com and um, before the break we uh, we were talking about a lot of things but uh, one of them was uh, how you um, feature General Oliver Smith known as the Professor, I think I've got that right, um, and obviously on, on the other side of that or sort of counterbalancing him it is uh, the leadership of MacArthur which seems a cautionary tale in terms of arrogance and and how one man can do so much harm and also how blind adherence to a leader can have devastating consequences. You you say that MacArthur dwelt in a hermetic universe of his own making. Um, I'm wondering were his failings recognized you know at the time uh, after this?
0: Well, I'm sure some people understood the problem, but, uh, you know, he was at the peak of his power at this point. He was running that occupation of of Japan and actually running that fairly brilliantly. That's that's one area that he was particularly good at. Mm. Uh, But he was also an absentee general, and he had surrounded himself with all these yes men uh, who fed him the kind of information that they thought he wanted to hear. I, I think one of the takeaways of this, story is that we should never again allow one man to to have that much concentrated power. Um, you know, he was in charge of all the UN troops. He was the head of the Army of the Far East. He ran the occupation, and it was almost like Asia was his realm, you know, just like everyone back in Washington tended to defer to him when it came to Asia. Um, so when he pronounced something was going to happen, it, it, you know, By God, it was going to happen, Uh, and he had just come off this spectacular success, this amphibious um, landing at Inchon, and you have you do have to give him a good bit of credit for that. That the the invasion at Inchon worked. Uh, Everyone thought it was a bad idea because it was a pretty tricky place to try to land because of these enormous tidal fluctuations, but uh, he prevailed, and the element of surprise was preserved, and they got ashore and reclaimed Seoul very quickly. Uh, so he was riding high. His stock had never been higher. And he got greedy. He wanted to keep going north, 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 mm. go deep into North Korea. But why stop there? He decided to go all the way to the Yellow River, which is the border with, uh, with China. And, uh, you know, wanting seemingly to ignore the fact that the Chinese were were entering the war in huge numbers. And um, mm. in that sense, I feel like he's got a lot of blood on his hands. I mean,
1: yeah.
0: he put hundreds of thousands of American and U- U.N. troops in harm's way uh, because he willfully ignored or distorted the intelligence that was was coming from from the field. Yeah,
1: um, I don't like- know how,
0: how MacArthur keeps, you know, he, he's still you know, one of our most famous commanders, and so many people just assume that he, he's a wonderful... Wonderful man and a brilliant uh, general, and he certainly had flashes of brilliance, but um, gosh, man, I tell you, I didn't meet a single Marine who had anything kind to say about the guy.
1: Well, no, I can imagine, and I think, you know, you mentioned he's an absentee general, and and this is a sort of Thing I really feel that anyone who is ordering a battle should be there, you know, like it used to be back, you know, in medieval times, where you know the king who was waging the war was actually there. Because I yeah. think, you know, um, even before video games, um, if you're not there and you are not, you know, in hand to hand combat and watching people die and having to kill people and being killed and all the rest of it. The decisions that you make, you know, just have a a kind of virtual feel to them, I think, you know, and a remoteness that is not really considering the weight of the cost of life it's thinking about you know like what happened in world war one you know just sort of Mm -hmm. the end game you know and i think you quote somewhere in the book where he sort of says he doesn't care um about i don't know if it was in this or a different engagement where he basically just said he didn't care about losses you know they were acceptable to him civilian losses i think
0: he was very very old school i mean like napoleon kind of thing you know he just you know great pinzer movements and he was really dramatic about the way he discussed military you know maneuvers um... i you don't get very much in his in his writings or his pronouncements much much concern about casualties i uh, who i can't look into his heart and know for sure whether he had no concerns about that but just in terms of the his written uh, you know, the documentation does not show a tremendous amount of concern about, about the casualties that resulted from his decision to, to, to push north, uh, even though the Chinese were there in huge numbers. And even though, and this is the other key factor in terms of the hubris, is uh, pushing into uh, North Korea as winter is descending, uh, you know winter in north korea is just simply you know no joke it, mm-hmm. it's uh it, it will kill you you know and it did kill in huge numbers it was um it got down to you know 35 below zero 85 percent of these men suffered from frostbite permanent frostbite damage and they even to this day have neuropathies and they lost fingers and toes and parts of their face and you know, to forge ahead in that kind of winter, uh, it's, it's crazy. It's yeah. just absolutely crazy. You know, you can't fight in, in those conditions. And as bad off as the Marines were, the Chinese were even worse. Uh, they, had, they were wearing tennis shoes. They were not issued gloves. Uh, they mm-hmm. were f- freezing to death in huge numbers. And it was just, it was just horrible. They always say there were three, three combatants in this war, in this battle. Uh, the Chinese, the Americans, and, and Old Man Winter.
1: Mm. Yeah. And, I mean, you just you saying that, i let out a big sigh, because it, it's just this awful, so much conflict, you know, with mm-hmm. humanity over time, and, and so much of it seems just totally unnecessary or avoidable with different measures. Um, well,
0: one of the reasons it happened, and it was a tragic collision that didn't need to happen, Uh, was because we had no diplomatic channels whatsoever with with China, with Mm. Mao's China. He had recently won his civil war and was the the leader of the most populous nation on Earth, but we didn't have, you know, we didn't recognize him, and we didn't have a diplomat. We didn't have an ambassador. We didn't didn't have back channels even that were reliable. So, you know, I do think that this was a battle that could have been avoided if we'd had some kind of dialogue, Mm. however rudimentary with
1: Mal. Yeah well definitely uh, that reverberates with the current situation that's something we Mm -hmm. could learn from definitely.
3: Oh yeah.
1: We're nearly at the end of the show I I did want to ask you though about um, the fact that you were actually able to talk to you know uh, people who were there and that's not an opportunity one gets all the time when writing um, about history. What was that like to to be able to talk to you know real witnesses?
0: Oh well it was a great Joy and, and one of the most rewarding parts of this book was getting to know these these men, these veterans of the battle. They call themselves the chosen few, and they are spread all over the country. Of course, however, I did notice that most of them uh, gravitated to warm places um, yeah. like uh, Florida and Southern California. But you know, they just never could get that chill out of their bones. No. And, uh, so, but these are gruff, tough old guys who've been there and back. They've seen it. They they're very proud of having been part of this epic battle. Uh, they, they feel like they acquitted themselves well. Um, they were put in an impossible position by by MacArthur and the leadership, but once once they were put in that position, they the, you know, they fought their way out of this ordeal. And so they're they're very proud. And mm. uh tough guys and it was just wonderful to sit with them at reunions and in their homes and and just hear it straight from from them. Yeah. I interviewed some Chinese veterans as well um, in Taiwan, uh, wanted to kind of understand their point of view, and also some North Korean, formerly North Korean civilians, uh, one guy in particular who now lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, was just an amazing character. Um, so, you know, just sitting with these guys, uh, is there's no substitute for it. Yes, the archival work is great too, but it, that one-on-one kind of, um going back in time with these guys and just patiently hearing their stories is is the real is the real joy of doing a book like this
1: yeah yeah and we we spoke earlier about um who you choose chose to focus on and i i think you know having the um the character lee and 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 having um you know the other perspective as well it is really enlightening i think in in a tale like this
0: Mhm. yeah
1: yeah definitely. Well, thank you so much, Hampton, for talking to me again. Um, it's been wonderful, as it was last time.
0: Enjoyed it. No, it's great.
1: <laughs> and uh, we look forward to uh, you being here in Santa Cruz. So mm. it's not too long now.
0: I love that town. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to getting getting back. That's a wonderful bookshop as well.
1: Yeah, no, it is. Totally. It really is. Well, thank you again, and we'll see you soon.
0: All right. I enjoyed it. Take care.
1: You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland. And uh, just to uh, remind you, if you just joined us or you um, came in late to the show, my special guest was Hampton Sides, award-winning journalist, New York Times best-selling author. And uh, he's going to be in Santa Cruz on November 26th uh, to talk about his latest book, which is called On Desperate Ground. I look forward to you uh, joining me again next time.